The text for the sermon this evening is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, to the end of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12, which is a part of the reading of Scripture a few moments ago. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, Philip, the evangelist, has been preaching in Samaria, and there has been an extraordinary revival of religion, the kind of thing which we read about in the Great Awakening in the 18th century in the United States and also in the 19th century, both in the United States and throughout the Western world. Philip saw many people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit took him from that situation of extraordinary fruitfulness and sent him into the desert. And there, as presumably he was wondering why God had brought him into the desert, he saw a chariot coming. Luke writes in Acts chapter 8, verse 27, And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. He was returning home, traveling south to Ethiopia. This man, the Ethiopian eunuch, as we usually call him, was sitting in his chariot reading this very passage of Scripture that we have read as our text. Most people are not aware of this, perhaps, but the idea of reading to yourself is a relatively modern idea. In antiquity, nobody read to himself. If you were reading, you read out loud. Philip was able to hear this man reading the text of Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. Philip asked the man sitting in the chariot a kind of obvious question. Do you understand what you are reading? If you ever see anyone with a Bible or with a New Testament or with a passage of Scripture and you are kind of shy and you do not know how to begin conversations, that is a pretty good way to begin the conversation. Do you understand what you are reading? In verse 31 of Acts chapter 8, the man said to Philip, How can I unless someone guides me? In many senses, he was quite right to say that because if you had said to Isaiah after he had written these words, Do you understand what you have written? 
I think he would have given the answer, how can I possibly understand this unless somebody explains it to me? I do not know about whom I have been writing here. That was exactly the question the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip. And we have this beautiful little moment where he asked Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And Luke says in verse 34, So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Luke tells us that Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch exactly what Jesus had done in Luke chapter 24 with the two disciples who were walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus on that day of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The first day of the week. Philip preached Jesus to him, the Ethiopian eunuch, From this passage of Isaiah, just as we read in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 27, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you know the New Testament fairly well, you will immediately think of many passages where there are allusions to this chapter or where there are specific references to this chapter that show very clearly that when the early Christians read this passage and behind that, when the Lord Jesus read this passage, they understood that this was indeed a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage in Isaiah comes at the end of a series of poems or songs about the servant of the Lord. There are little hints. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 49, and Isaiah chapter 50, that somehow or another, woven into the life of this servant of the Lord is a certain amount of suffering. But there is nothing in the previous three chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah that has really prepared us for what we find here in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. This brings us onto a new plane of prophecy, a new depth of promise of what the Savior would do and what he would go through and how people would respond to him. Isaiah 52 and 53 actually form five stanzas. The first in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52. And then chapter 53 verses 1 through 3, the second. 
The third stanza is verses 4 through 6. The fourth stanza is verses 7 through 9. And the fifth stanza, verses 10 through 12. Most Christians know this passage in Scripture as though it begins in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. If you have ever memorized this passage, you probably started memorizing at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? However, this poem, this servant song, this prophecy of the Messiah very obviously begins in chapter 52, verse 13, because the first poem, the first servant song in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 begins, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And now, like a bookend, the last of the poems, or servant songs, begins with the words, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This last servant song takes us through five stages of the inner experience of the servant of the Lord as Isaiah looks forward to but does not fully understand that this is actually a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the great servant of the Lord. Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 15 tells us right at the beginning about his completely unexpected triumph. Behold, My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and lifted up and be very high. These are three different ways of saying exactly the same thing. Exalted, extolled or lifted up, and very high. He wants to make it very clear at the beginning that this exaltation of the servant is altogether unexpected. It is unexpected, first of all, in terms of his appearance. Verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage or his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So there is something immediately astonishing, surprising, about this as verse 14 says at the beginning just as many were astonished at you stunned amazed why because this servant of the Lord Isaiah says is going to be exalted and lifted up and very high but he's one who suffers from appalling disfigurement he is marred more than any man people are not asking the question who is this people are asking the question is this human 
He's marred more than any man. And he is so apparently by an unnatural act of violence. This is not how he is by nature. This is how he becomes. This is something that happens to him. This unnatural marring of his person. So the appearance of this servant of the Lord is very unexpected and it is also something that leads to a very unexpected conclusion. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. If you were reading or hearing this in Isaiah's day, that word sprinkle would stand out to you. There would be something in your life that you always associated with the idea of sprinkling. And that, of course, is the sprinkling of sacrificial blood either over people or over objects as an expression of the way in which through a sacrifice the sins of the people would be forgiven or the pollution of the object would be cleansed. So that sprinkle is a verb that always associates in the minds of the first hearers of these words. This is happening as a result of sacrifice taking place of life being given over in death. There is no explanation here of the connection between these two things. There is a description of the servant who is going to be disfigured, who is going to be broken, and somehow or another, as a result of this, this servant is going to sprinkle many nations not just the Jewish people, but something is going to take place internationally as a result of the exaltation of this servant of the Lord. In other words, somehow or other, there is a connection between his sufferings and his exaltation. And somehow or another, Through his sufferings, his exaltation is going to become an international event and an international event that is actually going to do something to people in all the nations of the world. So the Lord begins by speaking about his servant's unexpected triumph. And then as a good poet would do, he just sets that aside. He just sets that aside and then he says, let us focus our attention now on the suffering. And then I will come back to the exaltation. And he does that. He comes back to the exaltation in the fifth stanza. He begins with the exaltation, although it is very puzzling. And he ends with the exaltation again. But by the time he has brought us back to the exaltation, we are now beginning to be able to make sense of the relationship between the suffering and the glory of the servant. So what follows is of huge significance. 
He begins with his unexpected triumph, and then in the second stanza, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, he describes his misunderstood humiliation. Look at the question at the beginning of verse 1. Who has believed our report? Who has believed? Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He is really saying, we're going to think here about the humiliation. Who would believe what the results of his humiliation would be? Because he says, look at the inauspicious beginnings of this servant of the Lord in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. A root that is in dry ground does not have much future. It is not likely to bear fruit. The vision of the prophet Isaiah is that whoever this servant of the Lord is, he has the most inauspicious beginnings, the most humble beginnings. The Lord continues with that same line. He says there is no pedigree here and there is no form or appearance. The word is translated comeliness here. In verse 2, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There are no handsome qualities that would make us desire him. There is an ordinariness here. There is a pass him in the street but not notice him here. There is a kind of, well, how would you recognize this person here? He seems to be like everybody else here. But then he takes it a stage further. He says, yes, there is an inauspicious beginning, but that inauspicious beginning leads to a lifetime of suffering. Look at the words in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He has given us a little hint right at the beginning that there is something here in this person that we might fail to notice. Notice the way he asks the question, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the Bible's way of speaking about the power and the strength of God. So he is saying there's something else going on here, but most people are not going to see it. There is something going on here that is an expression of the arm of the Lord in his power and saving grace. But actually people are not going to see it because they will take, be taken up merely with external things. His appearance, his suffering that meets the eye. You and I today 
read this as people who know the New Testament. And we say, that's quite impossible. Quite impossible. How could that possibly be true of Jesus that people would not understand him? Do I really need to ask that question? Do not most people in the United States know the name of Jesus? And dare I say, most people in the United States have really no idea who Jesus is. And by and large would pass him in the street and actually, functionally, they both despise him and reject him. How can I say they despise him? They despise him by regarding themselves as more important than he is. By imagining that he, at very best, would have an incidental place in their lives. By saying there are more important things in the world than what you believe about Jesus. Or worshiping Jesus. Or knowing Jesus. That is actually to despise Jesus. So the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is speaking here about a reality that took place in the days of the New Testament. He's speaking here about a reality that is always true. The unexpected triumph takes place despite the misunderstood humiliation. And then in the third stanza, in verses 4 through 6, we are taken even further down from triumph to humiliation and now to his profound sufferings. Do you see that? We look at him and he says we can draw only one conclusion. Verse 4, B. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Actually, that is right. That is exactly right. He is saying people do not even see the significance of Jesus when they get it exactly right. This is how people thought about Jesus in the first century too. Jesus is accursed. Did they not say that in the first century? Jesus is accursed. Look what happened to him. And the Apostle Paul agrees. He writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So at one level, they were absolutely right. They looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus has been cursed. Jesus is under the judgment of God. That is why he is rejected, because he is accursed. And yet there is also something here that does not make sense. Actually, it is only when people realize that there is something here that does not make sense that there is any hope whatsoever of them grasping what the heart of the Christian gospel is. 
He is accursed. He is accursed by God. He recognized it himself. Remember his cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? The answer is because you are under the curse. You are under the judgment of God. That is why you feel forsaken. There's something here that does not seem to make sense, really. Because he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then in verse 5, we get to the heart of it. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. He was cut with blows. But apparently not because of himself. That is what we need to see. We look at the cross. We look at the suffering. And we look at his humiliation. We're not meant to see. This is very sad. And it moves me deeply to tears. No, what we are meant to see is the arm of the Lord and that the way in which God is showing His power to bring forgiveness and salvation is by taking our sins and laying them on Jesus. By taking our guilt and laying it on Jesus. By taking our alienation from God and laying it on Jesus. And that is what brings the Lord through the prophet to stanza number four. He begins with his unexpected triumph. He moves to his misunderstood humiliation. He teaches about his profound sufferings. And in the middle of it, he says something about Jesus' perfect submission. Verses seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he was It is almost unbearable to read those parts of the gospel. People spitting on Jesus. People making fun of Jesus. People despising Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It is actually one of the most impressive things about the Gospels in the way in which these words are fulfilled in the Gospels. There's no point in Jesus' trials, either religious or Roman, in which he issues a single protest about the injustice of what is happening to him and the lack of due process of law. Why does he not protest? Because he understands that actually what is happening here in his crucifixion is the process of law. It is the due process of the law of God against anyone who comes into his presence bearing sin. What is happening here 
wonder of wonders is that Jesus, who has no sin of his own, is coming into the presence of God, having gathered up all our sins and bringing our sins into the very presence of God, understanding that he is the one who is going to undergo due process of law in our place so that the scriptures teach us that even though this was God's only begotten son coming into his presence bearing armloads of our sin then due process of law would be effected yes also and indeed especially in the case of his own son So he would be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You might say to yourself, surely Jesus did not understand it this way. This was exactly how Jesus understood it. Do you remember how in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, The Lord Jesus quoted the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 when he said, This is the night when the prophecy of the Lord through Zechariah will be fulfilled in which God says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is exactly Jesus' understanding of what was happening to him in his humiliation, in his suffering, in his rejection, and finally in his crucifixion. The striking thing about Jesus' trial is that he is accused of two crimes. One, the religious crime of blasphemy. And two, the political crime of treason. And he accepts those charges because those are God's charges against us. That we have blasphemed his name rather than worship him with all of our heart and soul and strength. And we have made ourselves the center of our universe rather than yielding to his sovereign lordship as the center of our lives. Jesus takes these charges upon himself. This is why he has nothing to say. He is actually pleading guilty in your place and in my place in order that we might be pronounced guiltless, not guilty before the holy throne of a thrice holy God. Because of this, Isaiah Isaiah sees how little he understood of this and yet how much he must have wanted to be in the chariot with Philip saying to him, I can tell you how all this is fulfilled. It is in verses 10 through 12 in the servant's glorious exaltation. Here is the explanation of it. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was the will of God to bruise Jesus. This was not a tragedy. This was not a disaster. This was God's plan being fulfilled. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is why we are here tonight if we are Christians. Because the will of the Lord has prospered in Jesus' hand. Verse 10, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So his victory brings riches. Verse 11. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Or rather, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How did the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 get along when he was visiting Jerusalem? It is likely that because he was a eunuch he was not actually welcome. Because he was an Ethiopian, he was doubly not welcome. I wonder if as Philip explained this passage in Isaiah to him, it dawned on him. I think it did dawn on him. Because then he said, look, Philip, there is water. Will you baptize me? Is there anything to prevent me belonging to the people of God? Being one of them. Being joined to Christ my Savior. I'm a eunuch. I'm an Ethiopian. I feel myself to be an outsider. I feel as though I've never been welcomed home by God. Is there any hope for me, Philip? Philip says to him in Acts chapter 8 verse 37, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went his way rejoicing. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who triumphs over sin and over Satan and over death. He triumphs over hell. Do you know anything about what Isaiah 52 and 53 mean? 
Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, do you know anything about what this means for yourself? To be able to say, but he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. A child can understand this actually. It is not rocket science. It is not for some particular kind of person. It is for those who look at this and they see the arm of the Lord being revealed. And they say, oh, now I see it. I've never seen it like this before. The reason he was wounded is because of me. He took my sin. He took my guilt. He took my shame. And he wants to give me his peace, his grace, his righteousness, his relationship with his loving heavenly father. Do you see that? If you see that, then the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. If you do not see that, cry out to God, Lord, open my eyes to see. Open my mind to understand. Open my heart to believe. Transform my life by the power of your Holy Spirit, lest I die forever and ever. He is a gracious, loving, kind, merciful Father to sinners. He welcomes sinners. He welcomed the Ethiopian eunuch. He welcomes you, even the least of you, even the greatest of sinners, even the most stubborn, even the hardest in heart. Come to Jesus and cast yourself upon his mercy and drink in the ocean of his love to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of the prophet, which are the words of the Holy Spirit, the words of you, the eternal and holy and sovereign God, who sees the end from the beginning and who reveals to us your mighty arm, your arm of salvation, your arm of grace and of blessing, your arm of triumph and of victory. And so, Father, we thank you that Jesus, though he came from heaven and from the glory that he shared with you, Father, and the Spirit in heaven, came down to earth and was made man. And he was marred more than any man ever was. For he was wounded, he was smitten, he was struck 
He was bruised. He was chastised for our sins and in our place. And he pled guilty to all the charge of your holy law against him which was really the charge of your holy law against us. And he paid the price for our sin in his death on the cross, in his suffering, your wrath and curse. And Father, we thank you that he is exalted, that he is lifted up, that he is very high because he has put away sin forever for those who are united to him by faith. Lord, give us that faith. Increase our faith. Show us Jesus and show us what this picture of his suffering, this prophecy of his glory and his triumph mean for us. We ask it, Father, only for the glory of Jesus who will not fail to bring unto you saved, redeemed from death every last person whom you have marked out for yourself. And so, Father, glorify your Son and proclaim the good news of Christ crucified to us and to all those around us, and to all of your people have been brought in through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.